and welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And just to remember that with each research topic we discuss that you should get professional advice before you try and implement any of the interventions with your own horse because each horse is an individual. This week we're looking at a very interesting paper by Sebastian McBride and Daniel Mills and it is the psychological factors affecting equine performance. And I think this comes on quite nicely from last week where we looked at, you know, what makes the elite rider. So now it's kind of zoning in on what makes, you know, a horse get to that level of performance. And in this research, what they did was a literature review and they determined for optimal individual performance within any equestrian discipline, Horses need to be in this peak physical condition, but they also need to have the right psychological state. And within this review, they looked at the underpinning role of temperament and mood and emotional reaction and how that kind of determines the discipline specific performance. So it was actually a really great paper to read with some really nice examples. And I think that's what really drew me in. And um, when we think about temperament, I mean, they talked about how it really is this like phenotype and how we can specifically um, try and breed for it. And we can, there are ways we can try and test for it. It is a little bit more difficult, but one of my favorite examples out of the whole paper was they said, just as a Shetland pony will never win the Derby, a horse of an inappropriate temperament will generally never succeed within that certain discipline. And I thought that was so interesting because it really is personality. And I know you've talked about that before, Nancy, with your pony and, you know, what it is that like they're interested in and what kind of peaks their interest and their commitment. And you've done some, like other work with her and you've done some driving and things and you said she really took to that so I just thought it was such a good topic like you know what really does fit one horse isn't going to fit another right I, I totally agree and I think um, like with my pony I was taking her out riding her and we are always in the summer fighting a weight issue because if I put a grazing muzzle on her she doubles her chew time and she'll yeah. take and she'll just speed up the feeding process so it's like the grazing muzzle is doing absolutely nothing <laughs> but making her eat faster you know and so um, it that didn't work so well for her and it was kind of um, interfering with her ability to groom her friends. And she's such a um, mare that wants to groom this one thoroughbred I have. And I just love to see that when those two hook up, because he's a weaver. So he has a stereotypical behavior. And he this is the first horse he's ever let groom him. And it was interesting that within this study, I looked up some of the traits of horses that crib, you know, crib or crib bite or weave, and they exhibit these stereotypical behaviors. They don't like tactile stimulation. So they might pin their ears when you're grooming them 
are touching them. They're not as touchy-feely horses. Well, he lets her groom him. So I felt like that's such an important component of my herd hierarchy right now that I ought not to use a grazing muzzle. So I'm pulling her in, riding and riding and riding. And I realized she was starting to get you know, act a little aversive. And I thought I'm overdoing it. You know, you have to take in that temperament, that mood and that emotional reaction and, and put it all together into a proper training program for them. So my solution to it was to integrate driving as an alternative to being ridden. So um, we started with long lining and then uh, driving her in the harness minus the cart around the farm. And it's good physical activity. It keeps her weight under control. And last week for the first time, we totally hitched her to her new cart and she just likes the change up in training. So um, I like breaking things down into smaller steps and then also changing it up so um, her mood is, is always Im improved and positive because a negative mood usually doesn't bode well for their learning process. That's really interesting that you decided to take off the grazing muzzle to promote the behavior. Because in this study as well, this is another area that I was kind of drawn into. They were saying that it should be noted that stress that affects performance doesn't have to actually originate from the sources associated with training or with the competition or with the event. It can actually just be down to general stress that comes from like behaviors being limited. And yeah. I know like that's hard then when you have a pony overweight because you're like, well, on one hand, I really do need to slow her down, even though she seems determined to overcome it. But on the other hand, this study actually said the same thing. Like they were saying, you know, when it comes to horses, their natural behavior is to graze for 70% of the day. You know, at least some horses will spend nonstop with their head in the grass. But they said like for horses, even just the reduction of that eating time down to two meals a day, um, even though that might meet the nutritional requirements of the animal, it's not necessarily meeting the behavioral needs. And then they just see that this restriction of behavioral needs ends up causing basically a chronic stress response in the animal and then will subsequently prevent optimal individual performance. But how do you get around that, you know, when it comes to like an animal like a racehorse, you know, They've got that natural flightiness and you couldn't leave them in a paddock before you're going to do a competition. No, um, I had some racehorses that were so flighty and so temperamental that they actually would almost do more harm to themselves by going out every morning, galloping. If I would come in and assess the mood um, it would have been so much easier on training them. I think sometimes we treat them more like machines than individuals. And all I knew is it was a gallop day. 
and she needed to go to the track. And, you know, there's ways you can work with them according to their temperament and their mood and temperaments long term and, you know, genetic and environmental. But mood is definitely changing. It's always changing. So you have to devise ways to turn that negative mood into a positive. And then that emotional um, reaction, you can improve that. Like we said with the stadium jumpers, I think it was week seven, we analyzed the training the genetics, the training, and rider fear with those stadium jumpers. And they were more accepting of those novel objects like the umbrella opening and the puff of air because they were exposed to jumps and those novel objects. So you can overcome the emotional reactions by exposing them to more that novel object training you can overcome mood through reward systems and maybe reinforcement. And then the temperament, you just have to learn to work with it. And a good horseman will recognize, you know, how to work with that temperament. Yeah. And they were saying as well, an example was when it came to emotional reaction within different disciplines, they were saying, you know, we expect our dressage horses to kind of shut that down a bit more. And it's important that they show like little or no um, motor response to non-rider stimuli. So our dressage horse should look like it's only listening to the rider and it's not taking anything else in. Whereas then when we look at our racing horses, we want them to be, you know, we want them to be kind of like hot and fresh and have that higher level but it's that fine balance isn't it where they don't end up like that horse you said where you know they're having that over expenditure they're actually injuring themselves on their way out yeah she would get so worked up that her footfalls were very heavy into that into that ground into that training track and even the bridle path on the way to the track and she ended up getting um, bone chips in her right knee and I just have no proof no scientific evidence but I think she hurt herself a lot more than what training actually hurt her you have you know, to do it over again, I would train to her temperament and, you know, kind of work with that temperament. And that might be taking her to the track early in the day when it's not so crowded. Maybe mm -hmm. it's taking her to the track when there are a lot of horses out there. Maybe that would help her relax. Might even be finding her a buddy that she would relax with to gallop in company. So there's different ways, and especially in racing, since I know that field the best, um, that you can work with those temperaments. And they said that with behavioral modification, there's kinds of like basics that you need to go back to. So I suppose like you're saying, you know, go back to trying to readjust her, I guess, and doing your positive and negative reinforcement um, and they also said using counter conditioning. And I just thought counter conditioning is one of those things that sounds 
so amazing. And it's like, well, you can counter condition an animal to have a positive reaction. But I have to tell you, having rescued a dog a week ago, two weeks ago now, um, counter conditioning is very difficult to actually do in an animal that has a fear response. And it takes so much time. I think even we do this a lot in small animals. We recommend owners to get a behaviorist in. And I just don't think that's done in equine. I think a lot of the time we just sweep like some of the behaviors under the rug or, you know, when you talk about stereotypies, like to me, I've always looked at those as addictions in a horse because once they start that stereotypic behavior, it's like their brain just cannot shut off from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like it gets on a track and you can't get it off that circuit, you know? It's like repetitive behavior in a dementia patient. They yeah. do the same thing over and over. And my weaver, um, I've really kind of looked in to that stereotypy response he has, and it's that weaving pattern over and over. And um, it's thought that, it's from being weaned too early. And okay. it's also thought that there, there's like maybe neurology issues in their basal ganglia. So that part of the brain is where you get your dopamine from. And so they're lacking in that dopamine. So they try and recreate it through cribbing our you know, weaving. And um, I thought it was so interesting that I think it was Sebastian McBride who authored this paper, who also did another study where he took um, horses who were crib biters and they would push a button and get a food reward. And then they had a control group that were not crib biters. And then they went to extinguish that behavior. So what they did was remove the food reward. Well, the control group, they tried to, you know, one once or twice, no food came, they gave up. But the crib biters who had the stereotypy, they continued and continued. Finally, they quit at 15 times they quit allowing them to press that button and so their persistence was big nothing was telling them to stop and to me that reminded me of what you're saying that they get on a track and they can't stop it that's incredible so the horse at no point chose to stop pushing the button it was taken away from them yeah because there then there had to be a welfare concern yeah know? frustrating them or whatever but I'll also put a link to that paper I think they allow open access on the abstract and it's really interesting so when you're training a weaver or a crib biter just keep that in mind that they're looking for that reward and maybe you won't get their full attention if you're not giving that release or that reward, you need to keep things consistent and in small steps and to the degree that that horse can take it. And that's really parallels with human sports psychology because they reference a paper where in human athletes, 
they found that the reason why they burn out is they reach a point where there's little to no reward and there's no motivation then for them to keep going. And they're essentially working really hard, but they don't have that psychological state anymore because the reward's not coming. And they did say that they think this happens in horses as well, but it's a big area that needs a lot more research carried out to be able to prove if that is the case. But it made me think, you know, we train our horses early and then we reinforce that through the disciplines we do. And they get, you know, that release of pressure, they get that pat on the neck. But we never really go back to really reinforcing what they're doing. And I don't know whether it would be useful, you know, if almost like having a refresher course where they get, you know, basics again and proper praise every couple of years. Yeah, I think that would be um, something because to do to avoid that learned helplessness that they tend to want to go into where they actually have really no motivation and they become kind of just depressed, you know, and wouldn't you think that's what it's describing, Kate? Yeah, I yeah. think so. And I, I just think... think, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're okay. Um, no, I was just thinking that like there were different aspects of the paper where they were just saying, you know, the you were saying the temperament is just so ingrained. So I think certain horses may be in a discipline that actually doesn't suit their temperament, but they've learned how to cope with it. And then, as you said, fall into that learned helplessness because you know, they don't have another option. It's what they have to do. And the reward isn't always coming. And I think it's important within that learned helplessness topic that you don't want low emotional, you know, reactions. You, because I always think you need to bring up that emotional reaction to a point where the horse is excited to learn kind of like a student in a classroom if you have a boring teacher their mind is going to wander and they're not going to learn but when you have that teacher that really describes things vividly and makes the topic come alive that student whether in you know first grade or eighth grade they're going to be honed in and they're going to learn and I think our horses are so much like that um, that sometimes our training becomes boring to them. And then I suppose that opens up, you know, the topic to, should we actually have someone else train our horses every so often? You know, mix it up and see how they cope with that bit of change or if that kind of reignites a passion. I, I think that's where, with my pony, I came in to do driving, which is totally different than riding, and to mix up training sessions. Um, when I was fitting the cart to her, I did it consistently until the point that, you know, she was comfortable with it. And then the next training session, I put the saddle on her and we went off for a nice ride, you know, and yeah. um, it totally surprised her because I could see in her face you know, she was like, well, where's the cart? You know, yeah. so, not that she thought those exact words, but I mean, I think it's good to keep our horses kind of guessing within 
consistency. So I know I refer to Kate Finner a lot and I have to give her that classroom analogy. She gets full credit for that because she teaches that about a teacher and students. However, she also teaches about the bubble of communication and how you're setting up that bubble of communication between you and your horse and the horse is understanding you. So within that bubble, you have full reign to go ahead and change things up for them as long as you continue to speak the same language. I think that's a brilliant note to end that on. Sounds good. I just, um, you know, I really research it because there's nothing worse than tacking up your horse and having that horse pin their ears, not want to be ridden. You know, I mean, I just really watch my horses for a reaction where if they react like that, there's something wrong. And if it's not physical, you know, you've got to check saddle fit. You've got to check cart fit harness fit, when you've checked all those boxes and they continue to have that aversive behavior, there's something not right. And you can find what works for that horse and that horse's temperament, personality, and mood, and emotional reaction. You work within that bubble. And you know what? That does actually link back to when we talked to Kate Fenner and when she said, that, you know, a lot of people will acquire horses and then end up selling them on again or getting rid of them because the horse is what they perceive as difficult. But, you know, we don't know if that horse will have had a bad reaction to something. And even though it is, it's not hard to counter condition, but I would say it's a commitment to counter condition and to create that good behavior again. But animals are so willing to replace a memory with a positive memory and I think that's one of the beautiful things about them whereas humans will hold on to a memory you know we've got a different mindset and we can moan for years but an animal is so willing to change that memory and you find that it does take repetition and it does take coming at it from a positive place and being patient and calm with them. But if you have a horse that doesn't have any physical reason why it's so aversive to the bridle, maybe it is, it's just had a very negative experience with it in the past and you need to just take a step back, give it that space and start again from scratch. Yep. And don't ignore what the horse is telling you. I'll give a quick example. And, And what happened this week is I had been having my Uh, one mare wear a fly mask because her eyes that's been dusty here her eyes were a little runny so I thought I'll I'll keep this fly mask on her so she wore it for a couple weeks and then it got cool and the bugs kind of disappeared so I kept it off of her well then we got a heat wave and the flies reappear so I went to put it on her the other morning and she turned away and I thought I could go into her stall and forcibly put it on. She would have accepted it. But I took that as if she didn't want that on. She was telling me, I don't want it. And you know what? I said, fine, but I'm starting to get better after 20 plus years of this to not always force what I want 
but to actually listen to what the horse is telling me. And I mean, if it was anything that would be, you know, life threatening to her, that would be different. But the fact that it was a fly mask, she clearly didn't want it. Um, you know, it, it doesn't hurt just so what, you know, and I put it up and she came in and her eyes were fine. So sometimes that, um, I think we tossed, we talked about that choice training that they did research on where they gave the horses options mm -hmm. and they went with what they wanted. Remember that research? It was on planting. Yes. And I thought, oh my God, I never thought about that. I always think I know best, you know, but sometimes even those little subtle things and if they're aversive to the bridle maybe in a bit is working you think it fits them uh, they have no mouth calluses it's not too big or too small in their mouth then maybe always you know do a on the bit lesson from the ground and make sure you reward them you know and and kind of start over like Kate said Go to your basics again, because somewhere along the line, something has got off center. And I think that's the beauty with like doing this podcast is, you know, after doing a master's in equine science, you realize we're continuously learning. And there was so much I learned in that course, but there's so much I have learned over the past, you know, 15 episodes of doing this that I just think, you know, I can't wait for the day that I do end up having the space and having the time to get another horse and starting from the ground up and, you know, imagining all the things that I'm going to do differently and how I'm going to try and make it the most positive experience possible because I've just learned as I've gone on, you know, actually the old way of doing things isn't always right. I think the only thing I've learned for sure is how much I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, anyway. very true. Okay, well, thank you so much, Kate, for this. If anybody has any questions, you have an issue that you know we're we're not, you know, putting out training services or anything, but maybe we could direct you to the right person or the right entity to kind of help you out. Um, give us a shout out. Send us an email or Instagram, Facebook, Twitter wherever you want to connect, um, give us a, a question or a concern and we'll be sure to get back to you. Perfect. I look forward to talking to you again next week, Nancy. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.